President Trump is waiting for the Mueller report. He's bad. He's a bad, bad. He's a bad, bad guy. While he's talking collusion, 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 I think in oversight, we should be talking about taxes, 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 and his bank account, his bank account, his bank account. We have not seen an administration in a long time prior to this in which there were so many attacks on the rule of law, attacks on the Justice Department, attacks on the press, attacks on the norms that we depend upon to maintain democratic government. Welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. We are all living in expectation of Bob Mueller dropping his report. There's a lot of hope invested in it. I think a lot of us are wanting to finally make sense of the story between Trump and Russia, something we'll talk about on the episode today. And some of us are also hoping that it may finally bring Donald Trump down and provide moral clarity to the country. Count me out. I no longer have that hope. It seems to me that our country has become so polarized that people perceive virtually everything in light of their pre-existing political views. Take the example of that standoff at the Livington Memorial between the high school kids from this Catholic high school, Covington, and various groups of Native Americans and Hebrew Israelites. This was something that we should have been able to make sense of. It was all on video. By watching 15 or 20 minutes of video footage, we should have come to relatively similar views about what happened. And yet, I could have predicted the views of 99% of commentators on Twitter even before any of this went down, simply by placing them on a pretty simplistic left-to-right spectrum. Now, if this is true of something where we can all watch conveniently in 15 minutes on video and in a situation in which really nothing that importantly rides on our view of what happened there. It is going to be doubly and triply true of the Miller report. To those of us who will read it carefully, it will hopefully provide clarity about what actually happened. That is very important. But I, to be honest, do not have much hope that it will change how Republicans in Congress behave or that it will provide some kind of common narrative to Americans about the nature of their president. But now I'm really looking forward to my conversation with Julia Joffe. Julia is a Moscow-born journalist long on the beat of Trump and Russia, and she's currently a correspondent for GQ magazine. Julia, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things that strike me in the conversation in the United States for the last couple of years is that we suddenly talk a lot about Russia, but we talk about it through a very weird and limited angle. You know, we talk about whatever connections the Trump campaign may have had to Russia. We talk about Vladimir Putin as this somehow fearsome leader who really has his country under control. And from my past conversations with you, it seems to me that that misses a lot. How would you describe the political system in Russia right now and Vladimir Putin's role in it? It's a really good question. I have a friend in Moscow who is from Sicily. He's the son of a Sicilian used car dealer, and he is the foreigner that I think understands Russia the best because of his connection to Sicily and the way he understands corruption there and the mafia. And the way he has described it, I think, is really apt, which is that basically Putin is not Putin himself. Putin is the head of the Putin clan. And there's various clans constantly battling for resources and power 
in the capital and throughout Russia. And as the head of the head clan, he's kind of like a blackjack dealer who keeps the various parties under control, keeps one guy from winning too much, another guy from losing too much, and keeps everybody in the game for long enough so that the house always wins. And I think that it's something that Americans don't really understand. They imagine a hierarchical system in part because of what Putin has put out there, the vertical of power, which is very real, but also far more disorganized than we imagine, and far more clan-based and with far more internecine warfare than we imagine. One thing I find interesting about that is that a very common experience in life, I think, is that as you get older and as you come to have certain kinds of positions of authority or semi-authority, you realize how much less commanding those heights are than you imagined. You run for president of your high school glee club and you think you can determine everything and suddenly you realize you're constrained by all these different constituencies and in the end the teachers tell you what to do. And I'm not sure that it's so different to be the president of the United States. Well, I think we just learned something about your high school experience. I have no singing talent whatsoever, so <laughs> the Glee Club is utterly imaginary. But I think that's true of congressmen, it's true of senators. And I wonder, you know, when we look at Russia, as you're saying, we are imagining somebody who doesn't have those kinds of constraints, who can have people killed who can make and unmake fortunes. And so we think of somebody who has this deep sense of agency, that he's at the top of the system, he gets to decide what to do. But I guess another way of looking at it is that, yeah, he's at the top of the system, that gives him a lot of power and a lot of prerogatives, but he's still a part of a system and he is mm -hmm. actually incapable of changing the system in any kind of way. And if he tried to, he would be toppled immediately. Where do you think he falls on the spectrum from actually sort of being all powerful to sort of being quite constrained? Honestly, it's a combination of the two, and it's always kind of an interplay between these two dynamics of having the immense power that you have as the head of an authoritarian system, but also as a hostage of a highly personalized system that you yourself created. And one example of that is, you know, all the talk in Moscow now is what happens next. Putin is now a year into his last constitutionally legal last term, which runs out in 2024. If he makes it to that milestone to 2024, what happens next? Does he change the constitution and stay in power? Does he hand it off to a hand-picked successor? And who would that successor be? And which clan would he be from? And it would definitely be a he. What happens if he dies tomorrow? You know, he has a heart attack or a stroke the way Stalin did and just drops dead. What happens? Or is he going to try to retire? Some of the rumors I heard on this last trip to Moscow were he's kind of tired and he'd like to retire and enjoy his money, but can he? And would anybody guarantee him safety and the use of the riches that he's plundered while in office? And in a way, he should be skeptical of that because if I'm understanding this right, he was the hand-picked successor of Yeltsin and his crew, and they thought, we can trust Putin. He's going to be basically doing our bidding, and it turns out that he didn't, right? Correct. On the other hand, he was a very good successor to Yeltsin, and he promised Yeltsin that he would not touch him. He guaranteed Yeltsin's physical safety, and he promised that he would never go after the plundered fortune that the Yeltsin family had amassed. And he, to this day, has kept his word. He has not gone after the Yeltsin family, though he would have had ample reason to do so. And the question is, can he find such a successor for himself? There was the experiment with Dmitry Medvedev from 2009 to 2012, 
But Medvedev failed. He allowed NATO to intervene in Libya, and that ended with the very public lynching of Gaddafi, which is said to have horrified Putin and killed Medvedev's chances for a second term because it was like, you know, do I have to do everything around here? And the answer seems to have been, yes, I do. So is he going to try and pick a second successor? So is this succession crisis that Russia will eventually fail as all dictatorial regimes do just a question of which particular faction and group and clan within Russian politics is likely to take power? Or do you think that that moment of transition may somehow be an opening for people to topple the kleptocratic system? I think it's definitely an opening, but I have severe doubts about whether they would be able to because the kleptocratic system and the people who have the monopoly on violence in Russia are one and the same. Andrei Saldatov wrote a brilliant book about this called The New Nobility, about how under Putin, the new oligarchs were the system, were the government, and were the siloviki. You know, the wealth that the FSB generals and the MVD generals have amassed is massive. Those are the oligarchs. You know, we talk about Deripaska and Vexelberg, the people who have been sanctioned, but those are the people who generally made their fortunes in the 90s and figured out a way to keep them under Putin. We're not talking about the people who have made their money just by working inside the interior ministry or the police force or the FSB or the investigative committee and sit atop of huge money flows that they just kind of siphon off and then export to the West. So those are the people who have a lot to lose and who have all the means of enforcing that control. One of the problems that is talked about in Moscow these days is that Those are the people who will not let Putin leave because he is the guarantor of their power and hmm. they're the guarantor of his power. So I guess another way of getting at this question, right, is to wonder whether this is the KGB system or the Putin system. And perhaps the answer is, again, sort of it's somewhere in the middle, right? Yes, yes, it definitely is. Again, you know, he's the head of a clan and at this point he's not one individual person anymore. He represents the interests of a vast Slavic bureaucracy, Slaviki being, you know, the strong guys, the guys with the weapons. To get back to your earlier question, though, about the dynamic between the vast power for good or ill and the capacity to exercise it, I mean, there's something very Russian about how that interplay happens. And one of the amazing examples that we saw kind of burst forth was actually the Salisbury poisoning or the attempted poisoning. And you have the much vaunted, much feared GRU and the Russian special forces going deep into the Western hinterland and trying to poison one of their own and failing miserably, leaving traces everywhere, leaving receipts, leaving all kinds of evidence that made it possible for journalists, let alone Western security services, to track. Then the Russians covering up that incompetence and that abject failure of that mission by saying, well, they couldn't have been the GRU because the GRU is so good. It's like, well, obviously, <laughs> you know, or I heard one Russian commentator say, well, they couldn't have been the GRU because they took a regular cab. And if they were real special agents, they would have taken a fancy black car with tinted windows that, you know, with a Mercedes or a Benz. Or, for example, how the Russian government is now trying to isolate the Russian Internet kind of based on the Chinese model. And they've been trying to get at this in different ways, which seems very evil and scary, right? They're going to shut off the Russian people from the Internet, which is a key lifeline for discourse that is independent, that is critical. And you have attempts like the Russian government trying to shut down Telegram, which is a secure, encrypted messaging app created by a Russian named Pavel Durov. They couldn't get the encryption keys 
so they shut down Telegram, which ended up shutting half the internet down in Russia, immobilized Hmm. electronic banking systems, payment systems, like the country ground down to a halt, so they had to reopen it. My favorite, favorite example of this is when a couple years ago the Russian Defense Ministry announced we tried turning off the internet with our internet switch, but it didn't work. (laughs) But it didn't work, and everyone was like, wait, you have an internet switch that can turn the internet off? And it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's right? so, um, so. It's the it's the you know the the evil mitigated by the incompetence, which is also quite Russian. I don't know. When I think about Salisbury, I think there's sort of three possible interpretations of this. One interpretation is that you know Russia is so brilliant that they deliberately made it look amateurish in order to have plausible deniability. Like most claims of three-dimensional chess, I don't find that very persuasive. The second interpretation is, I'm sure I'm going to slightly mischaracterize it, but it's broadly what you said, which is to say, look, actually, they're not that competent. They're quite amateurish in this. They left all kinds of traces. And they didn't poison the guy. They killed some random woman. And, and they didn't actually manage to kill <laughs> the guy, right. Actually, this is, in an important way, autocracy tempered by incompetence. I mean, I wonder whether there's a third possibility here where, yes, these mistakes are blunders. They didn't set out to make those mistakes. And yes, it's true that they didn't actually manage to kill the guy they set out to kill. But the sort of brazenness in with mm-hmm. which Russia is willing to break international rules and norms and the fact that they don't actually care that anybody who looks at this in an objective way will figure out that the Russian state tried to kill somebody on British soil still gives them an immense power. And if you're a Russian dissident living abroad, Skripal will still scare you to death because, yeah, they somehow didn't manage to kill the guy. But, you know, next time, perhaps they will. And if they are willing to come to Britain, then they're willing to come anywhere else to kill people who criticize Putin. So I wonder to what extent that incompetence does actually temper the power of a state. Well, I think it tempers it, but it certainly doesn't negate it or obviate it. Right. If you talk to somebody like Vladimir Karamurza, who is a very prominent dissident who lives between the States and Russia, who has been poisoned now twice and has lived to tell about it, it was a horrible experience to be sure. And everyone understands that he's in grave and mortal danger. But at the same time, they didn't get him. It's not that people in Russia who are critical of the government aren't scared. They definitely are, and they understand that at any point they can be killed or in some this isn't it's not that it's worse, but it's pretty bad too, you know, run out of business, deprived of their livelihood and forced to live a life of penury for decades to come as a lot of journalists have been forced to do or have been forced out of the profession entirely. Again, it's not that it obviates or negates the evil. It just tempers it. And there's still a hope that you find, for example, in Russian opposition circles. There's a hope that, you know, when they come to shoot you, they might miss. Hmm. Sometimes that's a foolish hope. And you see it, for example, we saw uh, new developments in the case of the three Russian journalists who were killed in the Central African Republic last summer or fall, I believe. And most plausible explanation was that Wagner the mercenary group belonging to Yevgeny Prigozhin, Putin's chef, the guy who also ran the troll factory that actively meddled in our 2016 presidential election, that he just sent people to kill those three journalists who were out there reporting on what his mercenaries were doing in the Central African Mm. Republic. But it was incredible to watch my Russian journalist friends who constantly go against the Kremlin say, oh, it probably wasn't him. I think they were probably just local robbers who just wanted their camera equipment. 
there is certainly like a wishful thinking that it's not him, that they mm. will miss when they shoot you, or that it won't be the Kremlin that comes after you or Kremlin affiliates that come after you. Because they, you know, if they were to acknowledge that actually it was probably Prigozhin's guys, that it was the Wagner guys who killed these journalists with total impunity, just shot them dead in broad daylight in the middle of a road. That's quite scary, and how do you continue to do your job? So I agree with you. I think there's a lot of, in the minds of Russian dissidents and opposition people and independent journalists, again, a wishful thinking that they're too stupid, they're too incompetent, and it'll miss me. I think the wider thing that this conversation is making me think is that we have to distinguish between two different kinds of checks on the power of somebody, or perhaps three kinds, actually. So one is, is there a system of a rule of law and of individual and human rights which protects individuals from the power of a government, right? On that metric, clearly, Russia scores incredibly badly. Yeah, um, definitely an F-. minus. Right. So as an average citizen, you have no protections against the government. And perhaps even as an individual oligarch, you are at the mercy of Putin. The second question, which is already a little bit different, is, you know, how much power does the figurehead actually have to change the system. Now, he may decide this guy over there is bad. That's a journalist or an individual citizen. There's no constraints from that at all. Even if it's sort of a fellow oligarch, he probably can say, look, this guy is out of bounds and everybody respects that. But he actually cannot really go against the system in any meaningful way because then the system would depose them. So that's the sort of second way of thinking about constraints. And then the third way of thinking about constraints is about state capacity. It's about, well, how competent are the people around you? How much power do you have? How good are they at carrying things out? And it's in those sort of second and third dimensions that Putin might be somewhat limited, even if he's not limited at all in the first. Right. You know, this makes me think of what just happened where the largest foreign investor in Russia, an American citizen named Michael Calvi, was arrested because he happened to have a business dispute with a guy who's friends with the son of Patrushev, the former FSB head and the current chief of the Russian National Security Service, a very powerful figure. Putin had every opportunity to override this and say, you know, you guys you have gotten a little too big for your britches, and why don't you let this guy go? I mean, biggest foreign investor in Russia at a time when the Russian economy is very much stagnant and who was arrested while a massive government-sponsored investor conference was happening in Sochi. And Putin was notified about it but failed to intervene. A lot of people have lobbied him. And so far, we haven't seen Putin say, you know what, guys, you've, you've gone a little too far. Let's just, let's just back it up. I think that he, he has that power, but I think he definitely tries to use it sparingly. And I think he understands that he needs to let his guys eat, to put it mildly. I guess I'm trying to grapple with what all of this means for understanding developments in the United States. And, you know, there's a whole set of very important questions about the extent of complicity of Trump and the people around him with the Russian state during the 2016 elections. I think Trumpcast does an excellent job of covering those questions. So I don't want to go too deep into that right now. But what does it tell us about the extent to which there is a sort of meeting of minds between the kleptocratic system in Russia and some of the ways in which people like Trump and those around him want to profit from office? One of the most plausible stories about the connections between Trump and Putin has always been 
not that Trump is some kind of secret Russian agent and he has his signed up KGB file or something like that. But that always struck me as very implausible. But simply that Trump doesn't have moral limits on how he makes money. And when Russians came to him and offered him loans and when Russians came to him and said, we want to build a big tower in Moscow, he was very happy to do that and to profit from it financially. And also, I think he was probably, and again, probably quite open to well, we know a lot of wealthy Russians bought properties inside, you know, Trump complexes, Trump Towers, Trump properties in Florida and New York, you know, in the Soho House and in some of the Miami projects, because those are the cities where, or two of the cities where Russians stash their money in real estate, because if you stole money in Russia, that means somebody can steal it away from you, you know, the next day. So you got to get it out of the country, and real estate is a really good way to hide money. And I have the feeling that Trump didn't do much due diligence on his clients and whether he was essentially helping these people launder money by selling them these units. Which, by the way, is the most obvious explanation of at least a good part of what happened in the connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. Absolutely. People came to him and said, we want to help you. And he said, anybody who helps me is a friend of mine. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. And if you have that kind of attitude as a major party presidential candidate in the United States, then foreign powers are likely to try and take advantage of it. I also wonder if it was even that explicit or if it was just people rolling up with lots of cash. You know, you don't ask any questions, we don't ask any questions, and we just exchange some money for goods and services. I don't even know if it was that explicit. I think in that way, Trump may very well have acted as a kind of laundromat for ill-gotten Russian money where, you know, they both need each other. And you have the two Trump sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, have gone on record over the years saying that we have had many Russian investors, many Russian clients. And it's interesting that it was only when it came to seemingly the money going in this direction uh, toward the states, Russians, as Eric Trump said, investing in their golf courses, or Russians investing in Trump Soho in New York, which Donald Trump Jr. talked about. But you also have Donald Trump Jr. saying, we've been trying to do business in Russia for years and years and years. We can't figure it out. We go over there. It's really corrupt and scary. He said, Russia is a very scary place because the Russians don't need you to do any business in Russia. They need you Mm. to help them get the money out. You know, 51% of Russia's wealth exists outside of Russia with very good reason because a lot of that money is stolen. But that's a primary thing that's going on. Then I guess my question is how worried are I think it's one of the things. I don't don't know. I think we still don't know. The, the, the money flows are really uh, complicated, especially when it comes to Russians who use, sh- I hate using this metaphor, but, you know, use shell companies like Matryoshka dolls, like Russian nothing dolls. And it's very hard to trace those paths unless you have a lot of time on your hands or you have a lot of subpoenas, if you, you know, if you're Congress or Robert Mueller. So hopefully a lot of that stuff will come out. If we ever see the Mueller report or in some of the Democratic investigations, you saw Adam Schiff hiring a lot of money laundering experts. So hopefully they'll dig something of that up because my gut feeling has been that he unwittingly or unwittingly helped Russians launder money in real estate in New York and Florida. One sort of hard-nosed question about that might be how much we should worry about it, right? I mean, so clearly it shows terrible judgment and character. And in any other president or presidential candidate, that would be a very concerning revelation. But to be honest, I already knew that Donald Trump has bad judgment, <laughs> bad character. So it doesn't really, you know, tell me that much more about him. If it's what you're saying, which is a lot of Russian oligarchs had a reason to get the money out of Russia. Trump didn't exactly do due diligence and was very happy to sell them apartments in Miami and New York. 
that's morally very bad. It also shows that he is worked like much of our financial system, both in the States, in London, in Geneva. I think it's an indictment of the system more broadly. I mean, if you look at London and how Londoners have to buy apartment, young Londoners have to buy apartments far outside the city center because the city center has been hmm. bought up by wealthy Chinese people and uh, Gulf people and Russians who are doing the same thing, taking ill-gotten money out of their countries and stashing it in safe investments like London or New York real estate. And that's not exclusive to Trump. You know, there was a great investigation done by The New Yorker a few years ago on how Deutsche Bank helped launder tons and tons of filthy Russian money. So in that sense, unfortunately, Donald Trump is not alone. He was perhaps more swashbuckling, a less institutionalized version of what we saw these big financial institutions and real estate conglomerates and honestly, art auction houses doing for a lot of people from the developing world who had a lot of money that they didn't want to keep at home because they have no rule of law, no independent judiciary, and know that somebody can get their money the way they got it, which is not quite legally. And one of the great scandals of this, by the way, is the ease with which you can buy citizenship in the United States and the United Kingdom and in many other countries now. We saw some of the Kushners trying Absolutely. to sell the real estate by saying, if you invest this and this much money, then you basically get your citizenship. I mean, the idea that any oligarch from any authoritarian country around the world can buy a million dollars worth of real estate in order to put their ill-gotten gains into safe harbors. And on top of that, gain the citizenship of a different country is really quite outrageous. Absolutely. And it's one of the great and bitter ironies of the Trump presidency is you have Trump's son-in-law peddling American immigration status to foreigners while his father-in-law is beating the drum of just draconian nativist immigration policies to keep out poor brown people. But, you know, rich brown people we're totally fine with. Right. Well... Money has often beaten our considerations. Mm -hmm. Especially with Trump. I think it's winning at all costs. The law be damned, basic decency be damned, morality be damned, and winning takes on many forms, including monetary gain. That seems right to me. So let me ask you a sort of bigger interpretive question about how to understand Donald Trump in light of all of this, right? So one frame which I tend to go to as a comparative scholar of authoritarian populism is to understand Trump by his disdain for the basic elements of democracy, by his unwillingness to accept a legitimate opposition, by his hatred of a free press, and think of him as somebody who thereby is pushed towards a form of autocratic rule. It's not exactly an ideological account. I don't think that he has some deep-held values or ideals that he's trying to put through. But it is understanding him primarily through these autocratic tendencies, which are firmly rooted in the sort of political realm. A second way of understanding him is simply as somebody out to make money who wants to gain power in order to use the levers of his state to enrich himself. And in that, Putin might be a more straightforward model. I guess my question is, what's the relationship between those two? You know, perhaps it's mostly the first, perhaps it's mostly the second, or perhaps there's a real connection between them, where one of the reasons why people like Putin, people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, whose family has also become rich, people like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, and perhaps people like Donald Trump in the United States, want to gain power is in order to make money. So the two things, the desire to make money is pushing you towards authoritarianism, and the authoritarianism is creating opportunities to make money. So perhaps these two frames, these two ways of understanding what's going on are complementary rather than competing. 
Yes, I agree with that latter formulation. I think that these are not mutually exclusive, but mutually reinforcing phenomena. And sometimes it's hard to tell where the autocratic leader got his start in the desire for money or desire for power, or whether it was some kind of symbiotic push and pull between the two that exists within one person. I think in this, Trump is very much a kindred spirit with Vladimir Putin, who, when he was brought to power, I think there was a desire for power and control over a country that seemed very chaotic to him and to most observers. But there was also a desire for wealth. One of the things that people like um, David Hoffman of the Washington Post and, again, Andrei Saldatov have shown is that there was a humiliation that came with the 1990s for the KGB guys like Putin and his current elite which is that they were the blue bloods, the elite of the Soviet Union. They ran the country. And all of a sudden, these young guys who were barely out of their 20s, you know, it's 1991, 1992, these kids who, you know, are just out of diapers are just making money hand over fist. They kind of came out of nowhere, are more adaptive to this new wild privatization Mm. and freewheeling capitalism that's just suddenly dropped on the heads of Russians by people like Jeffrey Sachs. And suddenly the old knights of the Soviet Union are reduced to being security guards and drivers and Mm. bodyguards. And it's to these 25-year-old new oligarchs. And I think it was something that was deeply humiliating for people like Putin. And when he came to power, there was an understanding of it's our turn now. You can keep what you got if you play by my rules, but it's our turn now. And you kind of have to step aside, which is why people close to Putin, his childhood friends, his buddies from the KGB or from college have all become fantastically wealthy in the last 20 years. You know, people who suddenly in the last, in the first 10 years of their friend's presidency became billionaires, went from zero to billionaire. I'm sure they had great entrepreneurial talents, but, (laughs) and I think that, but then you need power to keep those gains. And the more power you have, the more money you can make. And there's rich people don't stop being hungry for money. You know, they just, it, the richer you get, the more stuff you realize you need. So what do you think the top thing about the United States or about Donald Trump is that you, as somebody who's reported deeply in Russia, knows the country incredibly well, sort of understand and you see most commentary, most people missing about what's going on here right now? How is it that your semi-outside perspective can help us understand what's going on in the United States right now? I think Trump is a kind of really elementary, rudimentary version of that. I think he's not as schooled in the finer arts of maintaining power and stealing money. He's much more kind of rubish than somebody like Vladimir Putin. And the results, you know, the the results, I think, are pretty indicative. Look at what Vladimir Putin has been able to build and how little Trump has been able to do. And in large part, that's thanks to our so far, you know, knock on wood, robust institutions that Russia never really had. I feel like for the last three years, we've been living through an advanced civics lesson and, you know, and a constitutional law class, because I don't know how many of your listeners, how many of us journalists knew what an emoluments clause was or how the 25th Amendment worked or the exact mechanism for calling a national emergency, for example, was. And it's also been, as much as it's been a shocking stress test to the American system, it's also been a massive shot in the arm of American democracy. If you looked at the way that 2018 midterms went and how many people suddenly became uh, engaged, how many people ran, how many people voted, 
how many people became engaged in the political process again, which is, I think, one of the failures of the previous decade or so is Americans became very complacent and honestly quite spoiled and took their democracy for granted. We came to believe that we could export democracy abroad because it was just so easy and natural to do democracy. It's like, you know, it's like riding a bike. And if you just get rid of whatever dictator, be it Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi or Vladimir Putin or the Soviet system, everybody will just naturally know how to do democracy. And if we've learned anything in the last three years, it's actually democracy is really hard and it takes a lot of education and literacy and constant vigilance and uh, being informed at all times and spending a lot of time and mental energy and emotional energy from all of us to make it work. And I think it's been a good, he's kind of very much shaken the country awake. And for that, I thank him. Julia Joffe is a correspondent for GQ magazine. Julia, thanks so much. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Tell us what you think. We are habitually on Twitter. I'm at Yasha Monk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K. And the show is Real Trump Cast. And before I go, have you signed up for Slate Plus yet? You get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free and best of all, you'll be supporting our work. It's $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and I'm Yasha Mo. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.